Our scripture reading today is from the book of Philippians, chapters 1, verses 3 to 11. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how, long, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Growing up as a kid in Florida, we always had large family gatherings around the holidays, like, like many of you, I'm sure. You know, there were multiple generations of family present, including, you know, my great-grandparents, grandparents, grandparents uh, my parents, and just 20, 25 people in a house celebrating together. And the two biggest holidays for my family were, of course, Christmas and Thanksgiving. Uh, Thanksgiving was a great time of being with family and friends, because uh, we also had friends over with us as well, which was just, as a kid, was so exciting to be able to have my friends come and celebrate Thanksgiving with me, and my family, who had cousins my age, and even uncles my age, some even younger than me. And that's a different story. But Thanksgiving was about family, uh, food, and celebrating. But it had nothing to do with gratitude. Absolutely nothing to do with gratitude. Later, after getting married, uh, Karen and I would celebrate Thanksgiving with our immediate family, sometimes with her family, but more often than not with my family as they lived closer to us. But it was still just a holiday to celebrate by eating lots of food, and, and in my case, for watching the NFL on Thursday, Thursday night NFL. I, I, that was my one joy about Thanksgiving, I would say. Um, <clears throat> But I remember vividly uh, the first time Karen came to me and said, you know, Jim, I want us to change the way we do Thanksgiving. I want us to use Thanksgiving as a time where we actually sit around the table and spend time thanking God, praising God, thanking him for what we have received from him. My parents were with us, and I'm certain they felt as awkward as I did when Karen first mentioned this. It was painful. When I think back about it, it was painful. And I would like to say it was painful because I was a non-believer, but I wasn't. I had been a Christian for eight years, but this was the first time I began to realize that expressing my thankfulness, expressing gratitude to God made me feel uncomfortable. It showed me that there was, a, there was a, in a sense, a lack of gratitude or maybe even some selfishness or self-centeredness in my heart. 
My guess is that many of us struggle with being thankful or showing gratitude to God. Not that we struggle with praising God or thanking Him for our salvation. Of course we do that. But I think we struggle in being reminded that everything we have is from God. And I wonder sometimes how far and deep our thankfulness extends because we live in a time that really values autonomy, right? And we have been taught and maybe we even believe who I am and what I have is my doing. I've worked for it. I've earned it. Why be thankful for something I've earned? Which again, of course, is the opposite of what God calls us to do. That he gives us every good gift, everything we have ever received is from his hand. And yet I myself find myself struggling to thank him for a job, for my family, for my child. On a daily basis, I struggle with giving him thanks for the little things in life and the big things. You know, a lack of gratitude can give us a picture into our own heart, and it can often reveal selfishness or other hidden sins that we don't see. But that was not the case with the Apostle Paul. His letters began by always overflowing with gratitude and thankfulness for God and those to whom he was writing. Today, we're going to look at three points around Paul's prayer of thanksgiving. First, we're going to see that Paul's prayer is one of joyful thanksgiving to God. Secondly, he is thankful for their partnership. And lastly, Paul is thankful for their promised perseverance in the gospel. The first thing that Paul says to to the church in Philippi in verse 3 is this, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Paul opens the body of this letter the same way he does in most of his letters in the New Testament, simply with a prayer. And more specifically, he begins with a prayer of thanksgiving to God that's followed by thanksgiving for the people he's writing. And it wasn't just thanksgiving. You did notice that, right? It wasn't just thanksgiving that he's thanking God for. It was joyful thanksgiving that was brought on by remembering and recalling the goodness and blessings of God in Paul's own life. This was normative for Paul, and you see it just about in all of his letters. If you had a chance to go through his letters, you would see his opening. He opens almost every one of his letters the same way. Part of that is because it was the style of letter writing in his day. But for example, Romans 1 states, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Or Colossians 1, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. This was normative for Paul to start his letters out this way. It was normative for Paul in his prayer life to have a life of a prayer of thanksgiving for who God is and what God is doing and has done in his life. Paul was a man of thanksgiving, a man who understood that all good gifts come from God. And he was defined by his joyful thankfulness. One commentator says it like this regarding Paul. He says, Paul is a man who sees everywhere the grace of God at work in every life changed, in every kindness given, and in every trial. Because Paul had an expansive view of God's grace at work in the the history of redemption, in the history of our world, he was able to constantly give thanks to God for the way God was at work. In the reflection in the bulletin, there's a quote from E.M. Bounds, who wrote a number of books on prayer. Um, He was a Methodist minister who lived in the 19th century. And this is what he writes. He says, giving thanks is the very life of prayer. Let me say that again. 
Giving thanks is the very life of prayer. It is prayer's fragrance and music, its poetry and its crown. How true that statement is as reflected and modeled by Paul's own prayer life, not just here, but throughout the entire New Testament. You know, when I was preparing for the sermon, I was again struck, which is not always great, right? I was struck by how little I give thanks to God, my creator and sustainer. You know, I think that might sound strange. It should sound strange. It sounds strange to me even saying it up here. Because I readily, and the reason for this is because I readily give thanks to those who show me almost any kind of kind, any kindness at all. You know, whether it's a seamless guy bringing me dinner, I'm really quickly, here, thank the passage, pack, take the passage, thank you for that. Or a stranger on the street who helped me out with directions when I came up out of the subway. Again, I always tell people, thank you. It's sort of part of my culture. And yet, I struggle offering God thanks for just the basics of life that he's given me and that he's given us. The thing is, I give thanks at the drop of a hat. And yet, I often fail to give thanks to God, who has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Though we've been loved, redeemed in Christ, and set free from the bondage of our sin to live for Jesus, I wonder why I, why I offer thanks and gratitude much more quickly to the person at the checkout counter than I do to God. What about you, church? Are your personal prayers characterized by thanksgiving and joy? Are you offering, are you even offering prayers of thanksgiving to God as part of your prayer life? Are you offering prayers of thanksgiving not just to God, but for those God has put, into, put in your life, both those you like and those you struggle with? One writer puts it like this, a soul that feels entitled will rarely be a thankful soul. Let me say that again. A soul that feels entitled will rarely be a thankful soul. My hope and prayer for us as a church is to grow together and learning to give thanks to God. So I'm so excited that today we got an opportunity just to stand up where we're sitting, stand up and praise God. Thank God for who he is. Thank God for what he's done. Thank God for how he's working in our lives. Those little ways that we as a church can begin to grow into this area of having a heart of thankfulness, having a heart of gratitude for all aspects of God's work in our lives and in our community around us. I would love it to come to the day where I can give thanks or we can give thanks as quickly to God as we would to a neighbor who did us a favor. Right? Would we not long for a day when we come to God and we can thank him, not just for his salvation, which I think probably most of us do that, but thank him for the little things he's doing in your life, for the job you have, for the income you have, for your family, for the hardships he brings. Can we give thanks even to him for those? Because he uses them for his glory and our good. The second thing we see in Paul's is Paul's joyful thanksgiving for their partnership. You notice in verse 5, Paul says, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul used his prayer for them to introduce the theme that runs from the beginning of this letter to the end of the letter. He said that he always prayed with joy for these saints as he recalled his partnership with them 
and his love for them. Joy is the underlying theme, and it runs throughout this letter um, to provide, in a sense, um, a framework for us to understand how Paul is going to model his prayer life for these believers in Philippi so that he and then, in turn, will encourage them to also learn to rejoice and to have joy even in the midst of their suffering, even in the midst of the hardship and trials that this church, the church at Philippi, was undergoing. You know, don't forget Paul's context when he's telling us, you know, that he's always praying with joy for these, these believers and for this partnership. Paul's in prison, and more specifically, the Greek word says that he's in chains. He's undergoing real significant hardship, but with joy. He was so caught up with joy and deep love for the church that he doesn't even mention his chains until verse 7. And he does that really only in passing to show that they are bound together in the grace of God. Paul's purpose, again, is to demonstrate to these believers that even as they face hardship, they can do so with joy because the God they serve is the sovereign king of the universe who loves them with an everlasting love even in the midst of their trials. We, we have trials. We struggle with um, hardships. It does not change the fact that God loves us, that he cares for us, that he's with us, and that our goal and part of these trials is learning to give thanks and to grow in joy in the midst of the hardships of life. Now let's take some time and turn our focus uh, to Paul, that, um, to the partnership that Paul had with this church. And there were really three areas of partnership that Paul entered into with this church in Philippi. The first, the first aspect of this partnership is that they were centered on the gospel, um, that they had, uh, in essence, the same um, message. They had bought into the message that Paul was preaching and teaching because they themselves had been delivered from darkness into light. And from the very beginning of their relationship, Paul and this church were on the same wavelength of preaching the gospel, of teaching the gospel, of proclaiming the gospel, not just in Philippi, but even as Paul goes out into greater Macedonia, they're going to support his work in that. Paul and this church are intricately linked, and, they, and their love for one another is a mutual love and concern for the spread of the gospel. And I think we see that clearly in this book. The gospel message of faith in Jesus, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life permeated this partnership between Paul and this church. Their partnership in the gospel meant this. It meant that these saints lived out the truth of the gospel daily, freely sharing in the proclamation of that message and the suffering that came with the message. We're only, we're, we're only going to get touch on that a little bit today. But in reality, as we go through this book, we're going to see that Paul isn't the only one suffering. But this church in Philippi is really struggling and under all kinds of trials because of their faith in Christ. I think that's important for us to remember. We now live in a context where we don't necessarily face a lot of discrimination for our faith. Um, we're pretty much able to come here and worship freely. We're, depending on your job and your situation, you may even be able to talk about your faith in your workplace. Um, we don't have the same kind of trials this church was facing because their trials were based on the fact that they were preaching the gospel, and with that gospel, with that gospel message, they were facing all kinds of problems and hardships that were being put upon them from the government and from people in the town. The second thing I want us to see is they partnered with Paul through finances. I mentioned last week that one reason Paul wrote this letter was to thank these believers for a financial gift sent to them. 
are sent to him. That gift was the last of a number of gifts that, Paul, that this church had sent to Paul over the years, over a 10 or 12 year period. In chapter four of this book, Paul says that when he originally left Macedonia in its region, that's the region of Philippi, that no church entered, to, entered into a partnership with him except these believers in Philippi. This church on at least three or four occasions that we know of helped Paul in his ministry by supporting his work, that his work of proclaiming the gospel would continue to go forth, not just in Philippi, not just in Macedonia, but throughout the Roman Empire. And not only did this church send Paul financial and material help, they were instrumental in helping the saints in Jerusalem who were in need. Paul took up a collection uh, for the churches in Jerusalem who were struggling through a famine. And we can read about that in, in 2 Corinthians 8, where it says this, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches, right, the church in Philippi and others, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. Did you hear, did you hear that from 2 Corinthians 8? Did you hear what Paul said? They urgently pleaded with Paul for the privilege of giving to help this church in Jerusalem. You know, when I read that, those words really, they just utterly astound me. I don't believe I've ever pleaded with, with someone to give away my money, ever. And yet here's a church, not just a person, but a church who's pleading, desiring to help those in need, and not just out of their generosity, but out of their hardships, out of their trials, out of their poverty, they're going to dip deep, deep into their pockets to help other brothers and sisters in Christ who were in dire need, even in worse need than they were. This church in Philippi, they were not just known for the proclamation of the gospel, but also for their generosity, which begs the question for us as a church, what are we known by? You know, I think we're known as a church that preaches the gospel. We're known as a church that engages with our, in the community. But are we known as a generous church? Are you generous in your own heart in the way that you interact with money? That's a different sermon, so I'm not going down that route. Just something to think about. Do we approach our giving to the body of Christ as a privilege in sharing with those who are in need? You know, how I long for our hearts to be captivated by Christ, that generosity would flow from us as us in gratitude for all that God has done for you and me. When we know Christ, when you enter into a relationship with him, he should be transforming our whole lives, not just our minds, not just the way we think about salvation, but how we live, how we believe, how we act, what we do with our money. Every area of our life comes under his influence. And part of that is learning for us as a church, united to Christ in faith, united to one another in Christ, is learning to grow in gratitude, grow in thankfulness, not just with the things we receive, but even in giving and willing to, to give generously. Real gospel partnership flows out of a love for the church and the cause of Christ and it's willing to give repeatedly and sacrificially, even when it hurts. 
Lastly, we see that they were partners committed to the same mission. The Philippine church was the, the Philippine, sorry, the Philippian church was not just committed to Paul financially. They were also committed in their willingness to send out their own members to help Paul in his ministry. So they were giving money, they were giving material things, but they went beyond that. They went a step further, and they sent out a man by the name of Epaphroditus, who we don't know much about him, but we, most likely was either a pastor or an elder in their church. They sent Epaphroditus out to Paul to support his ministry, to help him in his ministry, and Paul tells us later on in this book in chapter 2 that Epaphroditus, who sent out, almost dies in the service for Christ. Their partnership was never just one way. The church sent Epaphroditus to help Paul, and Paul wanted to send Timothy back to them to help this church in their trials, to encourage them and instruct them while they were going through this period of trials and hardships. You know, Sinclair Ferguson, who's a pastor, Bible teacher, says, your checkbook is important, but it's not all important. It is, for example, never money wasted when we send people to encourage missionaries, pastors, or others in ministry. You know, Karen and I can attest to this truth. Uh, some of you may know this, but, uh, and some of you may not. We served with our denomination's uh, for, arm of our denomination's foreign missions department, I'll call it. It's called Mission to the World. We served with them for 10 years in Eastern Europe, uh, helping plant churches and revitalize churches in